Digital Consciousness Radio, where we aspire, we desire, we conspire and delight in the delicious words of human awareness, driving it deep into the hearts of every being, whether it be in our business lives, our personal lives, or even our conscious lives, and perhaps giving you a hmm moment just makes you stop and think about the world that it is that we live in today. Digital Consciousness Radio, digitally enhancing humanity. Hello everyone in the Digital Consciousness community. Welcome to Digital Consciousness TV. This is our next episode. If you haven't hit us up, check us out on our Facebook page or on our YouTube channel. Uh, Make sure you check out some of these thought-provoking, leading-edge leaders of our time that we get the absolute pleasure to interview for you guys. And some of the questions that you had today have been answered uh, by the great Dr. John D. Martini. Now, 11 years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting this man and uh, attending one of his seminars. And that actually, one thing that he said to me was the one thing that propelled me into change, saw me stepping out of corporate factories and going into building global charitable organizations, multi-million dollar businesses, and some fails, some successes, but hey, that's life. And uh, my entire journey is a result of this one little thought droplet that came from uh, from Dr. John D. Martini, so it was an absolute joy to be able to thank him in person and also uh, to be able to share and re-gift his message of, on to other people um, that he is continuously sharing around the world. So for people who do not know who Dr. John D. Martini is, well, we're going to get you out from under that rock <laughs> because he is a human behavior specialist and educator. He's a business consultant and internationally published author. Now, he is definitely hands down one of the world leading authorities in human behavior uh, and also in personal development. And he covers off, he's got like some 72 different courses that cover multiple aspects of human development. His trademark method, methodologies are known as the Demartini Method and the Demartini Value Determination. And this is basically a culmination of over 42 years of cross-disciplinary research and study. And what he's done now is he's incorporated this into human development and uh, human development industries across the world. And Dr. D. Martini has pretty much travels the world 360 days a year and he, uh, he travels the globe and, and shares his message, he teaches. I mean, even with his interview today, he had like another four or five to go. He's just a man on a mission and it's awesome. And he's just, I mean, I had to take my hair down after that interview because my brain was just like full of so much information. It was amazing. Um, the mindset of this person and just the, the tools and the information just to, just to listen and tune into the work that he does is, is truly amazing. He's really worth listening. To. Um, and if you have heard him before, then um, tune in again because we're covering some pretty different topics in this uh, interview. So we're going to go go over mythology, we're going over theology, we're going over, uh, you know, uh, we talk about science, we talk about souls, we talk about uh, all sorts of stuff. Well, you're going to have to watch it now because <laughs> I don't want to give it all away. So yeah, but it is a really interesting uh, uh, interview. So make sure you uh, take a seat, <laughs> grab a cup of tea or a green smoothie or whatever it is that you like and uh, tune into this wonderful interview with the great Dr. John D. Martini. It was an absolute pleasure to interview uh, such a great mind. Uh, so enjoy and until then keep digitally conscious and if you do like what you see please like, share or subscribe, share the love, get this out there. That's what this is for. It's a platform for all of you in the digital consciousness community to share the love. There's important messages in all these interviews and that's the reason why I do it. And it's there for free for everyone to share. So make sure you get the message out there. Help me get that message out there. So without further ado, I am going to introduce you to Dr. John D. Martini. Until then, keep digitally conscious. Peace. 
Okay, thank you so much to the great Dr. John D. Martini, who is joining us today for Digital Consciousness TV. Um, thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for having the, uh, giving me the opportunity to speak and share with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And so today, what, some of the topics I want to cover off on is uh, is looking at the importance of rituals and the left brain versus right brain. And uh, I'll delve into a little bit of history, which I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with, but for our listeners, I'll, I'll, I'll take them through this uh, modality of thought that I'm going through with this question. So when the people of the Andeans journey um, into the other world, it was epitomized by, you know, the river flowing along the sacred valley between I think it was Cusco and Machu Picchu. Now, much like the Egyptians who saw the Nile in the same way, they performed the passion play of Isis and Osiris in the riverside temples. These megalithic temples of great antiquity <coughs> saw the Andeans initiate, uh, or the Andean initiates, go into a special room that was carved out of this rock. And as part of their ritual, they went inside the temples, they saw two doors offering a choice, and they would have to either choose the left door or the right door. And those who chose the left door would be impeded by their progress or the progress would be impeded. And then those who chose the right door uh, were led into a secret chamber where their final ritual was conducted and they were effectively transcend. So the simple teachings illustrate the limitations of the left logical part of the brain to access the other world and its wisdom versus the right intuitive part of the brain is said to be the only door that would effectively get you there. <laughs> now, this was latest, later taught by the philosopher Zeno thousands of years ago. Um, but when we tie this into, say, the modern philosophies of, say, Daniel Pink's book, where he talks about how right-brainers will rule the world, um, my question is, what are your thoughts on these theories and do you feel that today's society has lost the importance and the relevance of rituals in the modern world? And is there actually a link between the focus of the left-brain modalities that have shaped effectively an unsustainable economy? <clears throat> well, I have a feeling that the, in the wisdom of nature and the wisdom of the intelligence that emerged in nature, that we have two hemispheres for a reason. And there's a, there's a, a wisdom in knowing how to use and integrate both. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, there has been analysis and synthesis paired in philosophy and in thinking and probably prehistory as far as we can trace back in art, etc. So if the left brain does analysis and breaks things down and, and the other one builds things up, the two together are essential for transformation. So I have a feeling that both are needed. I know for myself, um, I've used both. I, I, I don't think I could function fully on purely analysis and left brain function. Mm without the intuitive and the visionary aspect of the, the right hemisphere. But at the same time, I don't think I would be grounded if I didn't uh, do both. So I always say that like the Chinese that had the heaven and the earth force, I think you need both. Mm -hmm. And just like in the Egyptians, they had the, the temples of the sun on the, on the Eastern horizon, but they had the places of death on the Western shores. So you have, you have build and destroy and, and uh, rise and fall and, and uh, anal just like in the body, you have anabolism and catabolism. Mm -hmm. You have annihilation and generation, or generation and annihilation. At all scales of existence, these two pairs have had to be there. So I don't want to make one better or worse. I would just say that we've probably slanted sometimes one to the other, and nature forces us back into bringing them into integration. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I find that both are needed. We have the inductive and the deductive, and we have the, the, the part thinking and the whole thinking. 
I, I think that they both offer something in our development and in our growth process, which is why I think they've stood the test of time and sustained in a development of life species. Yeah. And where do you think the origins of the whole, you know, concept of duality comes from? Well, our sensory perceptions are contrasts. So if we if we see something, if we're in a completely whited snow white, which I've had the opportunity to be in a few times, mm. um, you can't see anything. It's pure white. And if you're in pure black, like in the king's chamber of the Egyptian uh, Great Pyramid, you can't see anything. So there's no perception unless there's contrast. And all of our senses are that way. And we have about 109 senses. Most people are familiar with the top five, but there's really a lot of senses. So in order to sustain a terrestrial existence, um, we're going to deal with contrast to perceive within the domain that our senses were designed for. If we go above a certain domain, we would explode. If we go below a certain domain, we would implode. And that little domain where we live, our senses are geared for those contrasts for perceptions. And they were then integrated through associations into conceptions and apperceptions, as James said, uh, so as we could contemplate these uh, esoteric worlds uh, and be at the frontier of what our known empirical world offered and allow us to go into the esoteric uh, domains to speculate and to, to pursue the mysteries. Mm -hmm. So I think we need both, and I think that uh, they're both essential for our journey. I've, I've, I've delved into... I mean, I've been studying 43 years on the brain, and um, I, I don't see how we would do wise to do try to slant to one side or the other. Because I, I see people who tend to want to go way over on one side or the other, and they usually end up marrying the other side for, for the comedy <laughs> act. And um, nature has a way of bringing that other side back in to, to help them grow. I always say that, that uh, love is a synthesis and synchronicity of complementary opposites. And the androgyny of love that's there in nature uh, supersedes any of our, um, you might say, our biases, our subjective biases that we tend to impose on it about what's good and bad. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to get us to integrate and to appreciate the hidden order that's there within the apparent chaos that we project. Yeah, beautiful. Love that. <laughs> and at what point do you think history became myth? You know, we go through this process of looking back at history and there's, there's, a, there's a tipping point that it becomes, like, where, when does it become myth who decides when there is a theory out there in ancient history that all of a sudden it's a myth well in our western world <clears throat> we typically consider uh the philosopher in the seventh century bc thales as sort of the beginner historically of the rational um, questioning we had uh, hesiod and homer and some of the mythologists prior to that and they were incorporated with reason in different writers like plato I think that both, um, at least in the Western world, that's the, the, the beginning of that rational kind of reasoning kind of thing. Prior to that, it was mythologies. And I would say that mo most scientists would say that we started out with sort of a uh, mysticism, mm -hmm. and then we went to mythology, and then we kind of went to philosophy, and then we went to science. And that's sort of a left brain development process. But we've really never gotten rid of any part of it. It's a syncretic development. And, and uh, William James said that every layer built on an antecedent. And so we still have those remnants inside us, and they're, they're essential. But I think that was the beginning of the reasoning thinkers of the Western world. There's something similar to that in the Eastern mysticism that shows around that same time. But I think that's because the Western and the Easterns were, were traveling and interacting with each other.
But that seems to be it. Now, prior to that, mythology, I like to think as mythology is the natural philosophy of the times. Mm-hmm. And, and as we solve mysteries, um, I, I've, I've, I mean, I've been exploring this a long time. And, and you have uh, every decade you can see new people solving what was once a mystery. And so we're always pushing the boundaries of the Flammarion diagram further into um, towards the infinite. And there's no end to that. It's an infinite, but we keep expanding it. So what was once a mystery now becomes history with once a, a question now becomes an answer. And so the story, probably a thousand years from now, some of our science will become the new mythology of the future. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably yeah. think that we'll probably understand a greater universal general law. And we'll probably look back at our fragmented thinking as just mythological constructs at the time. But mythology is... Um, it, it, we, we can trace it back pretty far back. I mean, we can go back 30,000, 70,000. Mm, there's, okay. there's human beings trying to solve what they were perceiving in the environment with whatever way they could with the beginning of language, semiotic meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's an ongoing progressive integration of awareness inside the human psyche through time. Mm, and and we're all building upon the others. I suppose when we look at it anyway, the history of information, and if you go back, you know, really in, in many respects, history was really, we only get 50% of that original picture. And then it goes again and we get another 50% and another 50%. If we bring that into today, we've probably only really mathematically got 0.0000001% of the real truth of the history because it does, in fact, we only get a half of that picture, don't we? Along the yeah, process. we get a bias. Yeah. We get a bias and, and whoever's... <clears throat> Kind of politically valuable will probably delete the rest of it. We have certain certain evidence of deleting. I mean, when Means came in, the Egyptian pharaoh came in. He basically wiped out pre-dynastic historical information. Yeah. Even Newton, when he came along, uh, he edited out uh, Hook and many other writers that that was influencing him. And this is not uncommon. We still see today. I'm I'm facing it right now with somebody that's uh, taken some of the work I've done and change the name of it and everything else and trying to make sure I'm not being found. But I, I see this. I see this all the time. So that's normal. We all want to rise to our, our um, you know, our times and our little power games. And we tend to delete those things prior. But but I think that uh, it's a syncretism is, is going on not only in theological constructs, but also philosophical and scientific constructs. It's a it's a syncretic system. You build upon layer and sometimes things go out of out of vogue and then they come back in. Mm. And, um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a believer of, of the brain seems to be set up in an integrative way where we integrate associations over time and create more general laws. I wrote a, a paper on uh, the universal laws recently and uh, yeah, we, we, we have an innate yearning to want to integrate information through time mm-hmm. and to try yeah. to make sense out of our, our mysteries and make histories out of them. And go on to the next mystery yeah. and go on and create the next mythology. I mean, look at at um, at one time they thought the seat of the soul was, uh, you know, in the pineal gland mm-hmm. in the time of Descartes. And even labeled some of the anatomy, uh, the hemedula, were representing the reins of the of governing the body through the pineal. Through the pineal. Wow. And um, then they went further and they said, no, it's got to be into the nerves. we got to go deeper. Mm-hmm. We now look at the nerves and we think, well, there must be the seat of the soul inside the nerves and the synaptic pathways. And then we went further. Almost decade by decade, you could see it. And they go, no, it's in the microtubules and it's in the, the transmitters and it's inside that. And it's now down to the molecular level. 
And then when they go for, no, it's got to be in the quantum level. It's mm-hmm. got to be at the atomic mm-hmm. level. Somehow it's got to be in that atom. There's got to be a transistor effect in these atoms. And then it goes into the quantum world. <clears throat> I'm sure in the next decades to come, they'll go beyond the, uh, the nuclei and go into the prion stage of physics mm-hmm. and go further to, to things we don't even have names for today as particle accelerators get further along, we'll, we'll, we'll discover there's a hidden mystery inside these things we think are little subatomic particles. Mm. And then they'll go and they'll sign the seed of the soul there. <laughs> and it just keeps being reduced. And then so it's gestalt and it's holistic and it's also uh, reductionistic uh, at the same time. So I, I'm a, I, 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 love, I love exploring the boundaries of the infinite micro and the infinite macro all the way in both domains and, and put a model together and, and live with holy curiosity knowing that I'm never done. You know, it's, as long as I'm green, I'm growing. As yeah. soon as I rot, yeah. I rot. So I'd rather just keep exploring the mysteries and dedicate my life to that and whatever I've learned, pass it on mm. and not assume that it's set and done. Yeah. yeah, and that's a beautiful way to do it. I think I, I, I certainly live in that, in that form of living life with a childlike wonder and looking at it as if it was a, a magical mystery story that's just unfolding. <laughs> well, I, I typically, I, I notice if I'm really honest with myself that um, I get caught on occasion uh, with my my bias and then i end up attracting humbling circumstances to break it through again so you know hopefully by the time i'm you know maybe 100 years old i've I've probably let go of my intermediate intermittent biases that that stagnate my growth Mm, mm. and with with the concept of rituals what we were talking about before um, at the moment, what, what I'm noticing is the modern world is heading in droves to the Amazon for, you know, these rites of passage to trans- transcendence through plant medicines. And it makes me wonder why it's becoming such a popular option. Um, do you think that there's a risk of the commercialization of something as sacred as the rituals that occur out there, or is it needed in a world that's clearly disconnected? Well, I think there's, there's benefits and drawbacks to it. There's, uh, some people will commercialize it and, um, you know, at least expose the world to it. Mm. And uh, then people know about those types of things. Um, and other people will probably keep it as, as the original format and try to make it, uh, you know, non-commercialized. I, I watched it in the surfing world when I was in surfing years ago. Mm. <clears throat> we had the guys that were the, what they called on the North shore of Oahu, uh, the big wave gun riders that were quiet and they weren't into competition. They weren't into fancy stuff. They just were dedicated to surfing every day. Yeah. And then yeah. you had the guys from California and Japan and stuff like that that would come over there and they were all into competition and they're all about the thing. And really the truth is both of them are needed. Yeah. yeah you, you needed both because surfing would not have taken on and become a major sport if it wasn't for the one and if it wasn't for the other, the legends that had, you know, such a dedication and commitment no one would have been inspired to even pursue it. So you needed both. Yeah, it's a bit like Joseph Campbell says, you know, we look at the world, we think it's a mess, but it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be a mess. <laughs> well, um, Bucky Fuller says that uh, pollution is future solution. Mm. I'm, I'm a firm believer. You know, people have this idea that they want their life to get easier and to get it to be done and it's all relaxed and everything else. But that's not what life's about. Life mm. is about uh, growing from one challenge that you've conquered and, and brought to uh, understanding to the next. And it's and, and I don't see an end to that. I, I I can't even imagine the challenges that, you know, 100 and 1,000 years from now that we'll be facing. Mm. You know, I, I can just picture the kids. You know, it used to be the kids would um, tell a lie to their parents and said, you know, I was at my friend's house. Of course, the parents would find out that they were actually at a party. And then, uh, and then probably 2,100, 
2,200, you know, they'll be sneaking off to Mars for the party <laughs> yeah. and saying that they were on the planet. And they'll be telling, you know, a lie and they'll be probably sneaking over there and quickly taking a, you know, some sort of photonic uh, teleportation system yeah, over there. I was going to say that, teleportation. <laughs> yeah, and, and they'll, they'll be over there and they'll be telling you, they'll be calling in from a holographic system that's pre-recorded and who knows what they'll be doing. Yeah. And the parents are probably going, these friggin' kids today, I, I can't believe what they're doing. You know, in our times, you know, we got in a Tesla yeah. and, and, and we had our first driving without having a human being there. And here they are on such a fantasy ego trip thinking that, you know, they deserve to go to, to Mars and to Jupiter's and Europa and things like this things without even asking their parents permission. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, there's new problems that will always be coming. Yeah. I, I hope anyway, because if you, Norman Vincent Peale told me when I was around in my twenties, he said, if you ever wake up without a problem, get on your hands and knees and pray for one because you die. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's all part of the whole Viktor Frankl man's search for meaning as well, isn't it? The meaning, the essence of having meaning no matter what environment you're in. If we don't wake up without meaning, then that's that's the imminent death of us. <laughs> well, he sustained the, the concentration camps by extracting meaning out of it. Yeah. And um, I always say if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it will fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. Mm. And if you don't pursue challenges and problems that inspire you, you will keep attracting challenges that don't. So it's wise to pick your challenges and look for problems in the world that you can solve and contribute to and fill your day with those with meaning. Or otherwise, the universe will smack you with uh, things you keep trying to avoid to try to wake you up to be command of your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the, the next question I've got is around, uh, it's probably has answered a bit, but I'll still, I'll still ask it anyhow. But the, um, the suppressed gospel of Thomas states that he who finds himself is superior to the world, you know, now many esoteric teachings today, in many ways, I believe are becoming institutionalized. You know, the term spiritual has become in its way its own church. And a lot of these teachings state to look within that everything is within. Um, I, I agree with that to a point, but the journey within is, you know, we know it's a profound one, insightful to the open mind. It creates change. It creates a ripple effect in the outward world. But my question to you is if we're focusing too much on going in, are we becoming too self-focused and forgetting about the outward? And do you think that there is a balance in practicing the inward journey while still being sort of present to the outward? Well, I already sense you already know the answer to that one. <clears throat> but I, uh, we have introspection. Mm introspection and we have extra spectrum and I think our just like our body has the ability to orient itself with uh, you know grid cells and place cells and orient itself in space it also has a capacity to have in a sense a, a kind of you know kinesthetic inside yeah. sense I think you need both I, I can't imagine uh, learning I've done a bit of reading over the years and thousands and thousands of texts. And I, I love reading, but without, if I just took in information from the outside without reflecting and looking at my own life and identifying that in my own life, it would probably be going right through me and not really, assist, you know, obtain anything. I think you need reflection inward and outward. Yeah. I, I just think that's what we're designed for. Mm. Um, because when we go and see somebody on the outside, it makes us look at ourselves on the inside. It's always a mirror. And when, we look, and when we look on the inside, it makes us think, well, what can we do for the outside? So I, I think it's built in isn't it, to do both. Yeah. Beautiful I think we're both essential. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, on a, on a different topic, um, I've been looking into the history of gold and, uh, and it fascinates me to, between what we're told and what's really the truth. Um, what was interesting was that uh, even in the Bible, gold was mentioned before Eve um, was ever mentioned and it signifies to me how important this thing called gold that everyone seems to chase um, has been and that it's been it's almost at the centre of, um, of history throughout you know, the, our appearance on the planet. It's been through the centre of our appearance on, on this planet. Should I, should I say? In, in 1898, in Africa, the British Empire launched the most expensive war in history and they had sent over 470,000 soldiers to fight a mere 60,000 farmers, 60,000 Native Americans. And, and that kind of gets me thinking was, you know, what's, why, what was so important for them to mobilise that level of troops? And, and it all comes down to gold. Um, even the, the story of Paul Kruger and the disappearance of the famous story of his train of gold disappearing um, but my, my question to you about that is, is you know, the idea of power, with the idea of power and greed to the side, going deeper into history, what do you think the significance of gold was and why was it seen um, to be with us from the beginning of time? And um, I kind of wonder what role it played both in the metaphysical and the esoteric history and how that translates into the role that it plays today. So you have a couple months? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's cancel uh, all interviews and you can just sit with me for two months. That'd be great. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm joking. Well, I mean, there's, there is a, a love for gold for quite a ways back. I mean, it's a few thousand years now. And um, we know that in around 2000 or so years ago in, in Alexandria, uh, the searching for gold was, was uh, the alchemic quest. They were looking for the philosopher's stone, the alchemist. They were looking for the, you know, that universal thing. Today, we found it in our particle accelerators. We found Max Planck's constant, which is the universal medium of all wavelengths, of all frequencies, of all atoms, of all molecules, etc. So what they were looking for, they found now. So that was closed in 1905. But at the time, they were searching for gold. It's beautiful. That's no doubt. It's, it's appealing and it's aesthetic. It's malleable, a lot of different variety of things you can do with it, you can make things with it. Um, it's a symbol of light, R-A-U-R, -R, light. So it's a symbol of light. It represented the sun, which was a life-giving orb that uh, was worshipped by cultures around the world. I mean, solar theology was pretty rampant in the times. So if you put all those together, silver was also involved because it symbolized the moon, the reflection. But uh, gold, a precious metal like that, was considered very useful and applicable, and so whoever had it had had some influence and power. Mm. It was a beautiful natural resource. Today, as far as an investment is concerned, typically gold has meaning during crises. People go back and digress to primitive um, states and originations. And anytime we're stressed, we tend to go back into more hindbrain instead of a forebrain. We tend to go back to our old ways. Mm. But from an actual intrinsic value, it doesn't have as much intrinsic value today as as other forms of investment, purchasing uh, companies or purchasing stocks and companies or purchasing land, et cetera. That has more intrinsic value today than even gold. And gold can fluctuate. You see it drop from 1900 down to almost 1,000 a few years ago. So from an investment perspective, it, it has a place in, as a hedge against certain cycles in the market. Uh, but its its esoteric roots are pretty strong, and it still has a meaning to um, – to stabilize economies, to stabilize power, it's still inside the psyche 
of the human being, the, the idea of having gold. Mm-hmm. And frankly, um, you know, diamonds and gold have been sold. I mean, Ayers, the, the publicity company called Ayers, they basically sold the diamonds as a symbol of love back 1930s and 50s and stuff. Mm-hmm. You put gold and diamonds together. Now people think you can't live without a diamond ring. Diamond wasn't anything significant until they did that. Yeah. And gold is, uh, is, is not necessarily more significant than some other precious metals. Um, depending on the needs in a, if we need a certain element in our society for the technology we're doing, gold may not be the most uh, valuable, but from aesthetic and from an esoteric and from a, um, sort of a astro theological, it's still one of the most significant, uh, precious metals we have. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you. <laughs> um, now I'm talking about gold and diamond rings, diamond rings falling in love. Uh, this is going to be our next topic. <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't that way until they sold. That. They sold it that way. I know and that sold... was certainly backed by the rich elite in, in the early days, because even diamonds and wasn't it um, uh, moissanite are both similar rocks, but they backed diamonds, and that became the marketable. Well, market. the diamonds. The, 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 they hired Ayers uh, publicity team, uh, De Beers did, to try to sell into the people's eyes by. They basically paid celebrities to wear diamonds mm. and to make a statement that diamond is forever and that's a love and it's strong and it means solidity of relationships and that was a primary fantasy of most people in those times. Mm. So they sold it and now you know Tiffany's and all these companies have basically capitalized on the fantasy that that's you know that is the diamond that is the, the stone. Yeah. But prior to that, uh, the jade and the you know these other stones were actually more beautiful mm. the other one it was just plain clear stone it wasn't anything with color yeah colored yeah. stones to the egyptians were way more important they didn't you didn't diamonds weren't important the colored stones were important so it's it was sold and today it's sold well mm. it's a very it's a powerful stone yeah. but now they're making they're making stones up to two carats um you know artificially which are more pure than the ones in the ground mm. And so that's diluting some of the value of the, the thing. And but pe- people have got into it ever since the 1930s and 50s or whatever. They they've now you, your mindset is I got to have a diamond. If you don't love me unless it's a big diamond, yeah, that was right. purely marketing. Right. Purely yeah. marketing. It goes to show show the power. I I, I I remember telling my girlfriend when she wanted a she wanted this this kind of thing, and I said, so let me just wake you up on something. If I give you a diamond, the second I buy the diamond and walk out of Tiffany's, let's say, say I give a half a million dollar diamond or a million dollar. And I walk out of Tiffany's, it's now half price. The mm. second I walk out, that same amount of money, I could buy you a condo in 10 years, 15 years from now, that diamond's not going to be what it was originally worth. But at the same time, the, uh, the condo will be double that, maybe yeah. triple. Yeah. So you sure you want a diamond or you want a condo? <laughs> a condo is stable. What did she choose? <laughs> she says, screw the diamond, I'll take the condo. Take the condo. <laughs> But she, Clearly but she not. was torn between the the programming from early yeah. in her life. Mm. I got to have a diamond. He, you know, that's that's romance and yeah. love, and that's a very strong dopamine fix. Mm. So that's where the dopamine of the amygdala can override the rationality, rationality. of buying a freaking condo that's going to yeah. be more secure and actually give you a better deal. Oh, I love it. There's <laughs> a lot. Half the diamonds come off the off the finger after you know. Yeah. Ten years. That's right. So, um, the condo is is uh, something that you can sleep. Sleep in, and you can uh, sell, and, and do a whole lot of things. With. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. <laughs> um, so, for, talking about falling in love, you know, falling in love in the words of Abraham Hicks is the focusing of conditions that encourage alignment. Now, most people who do it, they do it, say, in a conditioned way, and then 
that condition before you know before that condition before they get to know each other induces the blending but because it was conditional the conditions take you out of alignment with each other and we observe the condition that ultimately trains our vibration and uh, and then we send spend well a majority of our life trying to control the conditions and, you know we get together with someone try to decide who's right and then we're living based on conditional responses um, for some learning to unconditionally love themselves so they meet say the right vibration could take some people a lifetime <laughs> you know and they, they're just too busy trying to get you, to this you, place you'd have to believe in reincarnation to get there so just know that <laughs> yeah so they, they get so busy trying to get to this place and then before jumping into relating with another person so many say that you know um, I've heard people say that relationships are like yogis if you want to transcend and evolve you know get into a relationship <laughs> it's gonna that'll be the thing that'll teach you if you're a willing student um, but if we are too busy trying to first get to that place of the unconditional love of self, are we missing out on that personal growth that we get with another person? And is the very nature of that conditioning set so then when we meet someone, we can grow with them or is, it the, or is the undoing of that conditioned love meant to be a solo journey? Well, every human being at any one moment in time lives by a set of priorities, a set of values that are unique like fingerprints. No two people see the same universe out there. And whatever those values are, whatever's highest on the list of priorities of the values is what they're committed to. Mm. And their identity and ontology revolves around it. The highest value is also their teleological meaning and purpose path. So tell me what's most important. Like my case, my highest value is researching and teaching. And I teach every day. So my identity revolves around being a teacher. So that doesn't make me right or wrong or good or bad. It just, that's what I'm up to. Yeah. So now when you are on a mission to fulfill what's most meaningful to you, the universe has a sense of humor and brings to you somebody to make sure that you're tested, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and any part and any bias you have subjectively against something, you pretty well guarantee that that's what's going to be brought in to teach you how to appreciate that too. So um, if you're... Living by your highest values, you're more objective and you're willing to embrace both sides of life, things that support and challenge you equally in the pursuit of what's meaningful. Mm. I always say let neither pleasure nor pain interfere with the pursuit of purpose. But if you're not fulfilling your own life and not fulfilling your own highest values by trying to live in other people's values and subordinating to other people, the unfulfillment that occurs will make you search for a one-sided world and immediate gratification of a pleasure, hedonistic kind of a pleasure without a pain mm -hmm. and ease without a difficulty. Well, if you're very aware and you really know yourself, you know your values, you're probably more objective and more resilient and more adaptable to whoever you're with. And you could probably be in love with many people. Mm. Uh, but if you're not and you're unfulfilled, like a great number of people are, they're trying to be somebody they're not. They're unfulfilled. They're going to be searching for that fantasy soulmate instead of the real soulmate, yeah. looking yeah. for the pleasure without a pain. And anytime you're looking for a one-sided magnet, a positive without a negative or pleasure without a pain, the other magnet is the shadow that follows you. And you keep attracting that part. And so if you're searching for a person that's always supportive, you know that you're going to get the fatal attractor. They're going to teach you the lesson to try to get you back into balance. Yeah. And so you can live by yeah. your highest value. So um, I think that relationships are a training mechanism. And they don't have to be necessarily intimate relationships, working relationships, social relationships, all contribute to this. Mm -hmm. But an intimate relationship is a little less easy to just walk away from. So it's basically smacking you a little harder and a little bit more efficiently than some of the other ones. 
and and if you're if you're in any way juvenile and looking for pleasure without pain and support without challenge and ease without difficulty and peace without war whatever one-sided stage yeah. um, that relationship is going to initiate you into higher mysteries uh, to help you transcend that illusion the Buddha says I will uh, the the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is the source of human suffering and uh, he says that you must teach them the illusion to the ready for truth. So there's gradations of levels of conscious awareness on that realization. So I'm a firm believer in, in embracing both sides of life because you really can't love somebody unless you can love both sides of them, the side okay. that you like and dislike and support and challenge and because and, they're going to do both because yeah. they're not going to have the same values as you and you're going to sometimes be in agreement, disagreement, hmm. support and challenge. And I, I, I think you have to embrace both sides. Yeah, and I, I agree definitely with that. And I, I, I sort of get faced with the paradox, though, of compassion versus, versus the soul's integrity when you come to a point where you realise that person is no longer serving you. They may be disempowering or they may have toxic energy and then you, you, you kind of get faced with this question of am I, you know, am I honouring my soul's integrity by saying, okay, that no longer serves, I've, I've you know, I've learnt the lessons there that need to be learned or... Do I practice compassion and keep going and practice the, the essence of growing even further? And it got me thinking about, you know, if we go with the soul's integrity, then are we truly practicing compassion in its purest form, you know, uh, or are we just setting up boundaries and guidelines within that version of compassion? So how does one actually practice true compassion of everyone while still maintaining a level of soul's integrity? Well, the word passion in Old English means to suffer. Mm. And compassion means to suffer with somebody. <laughs> and, and that's a choice because you know, if you're suffering, it's because you're expecting the reality to be different than what it is. Yeah. And you're expecting a one-sided world uh, without the other side. So I would say that suffering is basically not honoring what is but imposing on what is your fantasy of what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And then, then you're now in suffering. And then you see another person is doing the same it reminds you of what you're doing, so you end up identifying with them, and then you end up, uh, you know, kind of supporting and rescuing their illusion with your illusion. And um, so I'm not really a, a promoter of, you know, you have to be in that because mm -hmm. I, I think you can have awareness that transcends that, set realistic expectations, and not see anything to be suffering in the first place. I'm not, I'm not a believer that that. I, I think the the perception of suffering is an optional perception. Mm -hmm. I take people every weekend in the breakthrough experience their so-called suffering. And dissolve it at the end of the program. They're going. There's nothing there. Yeah. It was. A, it was an illusion I had. Yeah. So I'd rather Stories wake them up from their illusion. I'd rather wake them up their illusion with hard reality, and and get them back in touch with their what's real instead of keep holding on to fantasies. Mm. Our, our, our depressions, our comparison, our current, our depression is our comparison of our current reality to fantasies that we're addicted to about how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And that's where our suffering comes. So I, I think that a, a relationship. Um, you have what is called a, you, because you have a set of values. They have a set of values. If they support your values too much, you get bored. Imagine if a guy comes up to you and says, "Oh, you're so beautiful. You're so amazing. I just I want my whole life to be about you. What can I do for you? Yeah. I want to serve you. I just want to be there for you." Just you'd say, "Go get a life. You know, grow <laughs> up. You're 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 too supportive, yeah. and you get bored with them. And if they basically told you, "Well, look, babe, this is what we're doing, and this is the way it is. It's my way or the highway," you get burned out. Yeah. And that's too much challenge. So we have a tolerance zone between support and challenge. And as long as it's with a pretty even keel there, we can sustain a relationship. Yeah. If it goes too far the other way, we go, this is not stretching me enough or it's burning me out. Mm -hmm. And you get bored or burned out. And so we all have relationships that are 
they're in that tolerant zone that allow us to grow at the rate we're willing to grow. Yeah. But there's yeah. no rules. There's no, I, I'm always amazed how people can get caught in the, the fantasy that there's some rule provider that's saying, if you do this, you're going to get bad points or something. <laughs> you know, there's, there's none of those rules out there except what you've concocted and you subordinated to by some authority that you've made up. Yeah. The reality is, did you grow and are you growing and are you, are you, you know, there's no rules. You can't, you can't, you can change anything you want. Yeah. You're free. You're free to change your rules if you want. So, so be prepared to uh, adapt. I, I, I love this one. I was on my ship, <clears throat> uh, the world, and uh, a 94-year-old woman came on, and she came in, and she had uh, she just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. She's 94. <laughs> and she comes in and she says, "Where's the action? Where's the action?" And and uh, and she came up. She says, "Young man, I'm looking for a, a young man to take me to the theater tonight. Are you available to take me to the theater?" And I looked over at Athena at the time, my wife at the time, and I said, honey, am I available to take this babe to the theater? She looked at this 94 and she says, absolutely, go and do it. <laughs> so I went with this lady to the theater and I thought, you know, I got all spruced up for her. And we were, this is in Belfast, Ireland, and I got all ready. And when I went down to meet her, there were two other guys. She had three guys she picked up. <laughs> she, had, she didn't have any rules. She just no. went for it. She's like, I got three young men taking me to the theater. I couldn't believe it. I was going, well, that babe. Anyway, she told us that she had been married five times. All the husbands died making love with her, five of them. And she accumulated cash like the Black Widow from all of them and was just traveling around the world having a great time. And then I thought of when I met with her that night, I thought about my parents' parents. I had grandparents that lived 101 years old. Mm. They're married 78 years. They end up in Hollywood, Florida towards their latter years. Mm. And they had kind of a an average media, you know, average life, not a bad life, not yeah. a great life, right. not extraordinary. And they were, they went this one path, both paths, the law of the one and the law of the many were there. And I thought is one greater or lesser than the other. Mm -hmm. No, they just had two different adventures. Mm -hmm. So you got to watch out for the rules that we subordinate to, because sometimes they're, they're boxes that are keeping us from expressing what's true. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. And so how did the night end up? Was it good? <laughs> How well, she show? taught us some stuff. And then at, at 1030, when we came back from the theater, she says, where's the action? Where's the action? Where's the where's the party? I said, I'm going to to my wife and I'll be going to, to bed soon. She said, well, I'm going out. Where's the thing? So she went out and took two of the guys and went out and did some other stuff. Hey, <laughs> she had her own rules. <laughs> that's it. That's it. But I learned I learned something from her. Yeah. I got a guy that also lives on the ship. He's 106 now. What? So wow. he's 106 and he's. He reads every day. He swims every day. He has a glass of wine every day. He eats wisely. He, he, he studies the markets and invests every single day. And he basically studies philosophy every day. He's a really amazing guy, 106 years old. He says, I like to flirt and be perverted every day with some woman regardless of age. That's his rules. And he's hey, when you're 106, you can do 106 you and get away with it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> So I could be sitting there under, studying under Plato or, you know, mm. whatever. I could I could study from this guy. They've all taught me something. Yeah, beautiful. They often do, don't they? Why, why don't we put the 106-year-old guy with the 96-year-old woman and let them have a 94-year-old Well, I, I have a feeling he, he might die with that lady. I don't know. Yeah. She might get him. Yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> he's, he's probably hiding from that relationship. <laughs> Uh, now, recently, I had um, I had the pleasure of meeting and hugging the lovely Oprah Winfrey, and uh, this all came about as a, a, from an absolute random act of kindness without any attachment uh, to the outcome. And what ended up happening was I was flying home from this board meeting, saw this young man suffering, and I 
kind of felt into it and I could see that he was suffering from a migraine. So I asked his parents, is he okay? They confirmed it was a migraine and I had this overwhelming sense to help, to serve. And I, and I, because I, I get migraines and I had these essential oils that I use for when I get them. And so I said, do you mind if I, if I give you these um, oils? And next thing I know, I'm in the personal space of this young man I know nothing about and I'm massaging his temples, massaging his forehead and telling him, sweetheart, everything's going to be okay. And I'm sitting there saying it might not, you know, may help. Um, but I found myself looking into him with, in, the, in, my, like in his soul with a deep sense of empathy and compassion. And I, after that, I spent about half an hour praying and um, sending him some healing and love and energy, and, and, but also understanding that it was a path and journey that would also be his own journey, whether my, my influence or not. Um, subsequently that saw me then the mother offering me tickets to Oprah when she was here in Australia and it was because her husband works for her and next thing I know I'm spending time with her and I'm sitting in this moment going how did this all just happen <laughs> it was just sort of through this random act of kindness but what I felt my, my question is that I did what I felt compelled to do out of compassion However, I decided to challenge myself in that moment and I said to myself, well, what does it serve in me by wanting to help? Is it really compassion? Um, and again, the suffering one now that I'm linking to, but uh, all I know is that um, I felt good about it and uh, from the core, but at the same time, doing that act did actually make me feel good about myself, which tells me that there is something there that it must serve within me. So if we help with the desire to influence the outcome of, say, another person's journey, and if we're brutally honest with ourselves, that it's it does satisfy, yeah, that it does satisfy some egoic urge in us. Is it therefore selfish to help another person? I'm glad you asked that. I, I address that every weekend in the breakthrough <laughs> experience, and I shatter the myth. Mm. Uh, I always say compassion is um, one wounded person who's been through something that can identify with the wounds that this person's facing and they're wanting to help the other person so they can help themselves. And it's a combination of the two. And there's nothing wrong with both altruistic and narcissistic components. I tell people in my seminar that I want you to be as altruistic as you possibly can on planet earth yep. and serve yeah. the vast numbers of people. And I want you to be as narcissistic as you can possibly be on planet earth and live the most outrageously royal life you can. And give yourself permission to do both to the fullest extent within your levels of awareness and, and reason. And people go, oh, and they want to take a side. One's good and one's bad. And all that. I said, no, they're both necessary. Yeah. And, and, and the, I always say that altruism is a compensation for shame and guilt of the past with the hidden agenda of the future, which shocks people. And narcissism is compensation for pride and self-righteousness of the past and the hidden agenda of the future. And if you look at social economic systems, you'll see these pairs are going on. So, um, yeah, you're, you're probably, if you had never had a migraine, you wouldn't identify with his suffering, That's it. but because you have had a migraine and assume, and with migraines are very commonly conflicts between your own intentions and what the idealisms you think you're supposed to live by. Mm. And so what's happening is he was having an internal conflict and you gave him permission to be himself in for the moment too. But, but you also gave him essential oils and you massage and these relaxed the muscles and tightened the, the vasculature was affected. But the point is that, that we only want to help other people that represent parts of us we have yet to see the perfect and perfect order and love. It's far mm -hmm. like, I, I mean, I obviously have, I'm probably the most screwed up because I want to help the most people. <laughs> and it's often that theory I say is, you know, we teach the things we need to learn the most, isn't it? <laughs> That's it. You know, if I ever really um, mastered my life, I'd probably be sitting with Alzheimer's disease somewhere. <laughs> with a 106-year-old guy talking yeah, about I would probably philosophy. not be doing anything. <laughs> no, but, but, but that's the journey. I think it's designed that way. 
it's just like Chomsky said about uh, learning uh, language. We speak not just to others, but to ourselves with language. It wasn't developed for just communication with others. It was there to communicate also what we were saying to them for us. We've all had moments where we really emphasize something. Did you understand that? Did you hear that? And you're going, I'm the one that didn't hear that right yeah. now. <laughs> and you, you catch yourself right in the middle of what you're emphasizing yeah. to hear so you'll hear it. Yeah. So it's a combination of both. Mm, mm. Service is, you can't help, an, as Schopenhauer says, we become our true self to the degree that we make everyone else ourselves. And you can't help other people get what they want without you helping you get what you want. That's the pair of, pair of play. Yeah, beautiful. Poetic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, I also pop out uh, to the digital consciousness community some questions that they might want to ask um, for me to ask you on, uh, um, on their behalf. So are you okay for me to rattle through a couple of those and then we can, uh, we can wrap up All on way. that? Okay, so one of the questions uh, comes from Hems and he said, uh, you speak about the seven areas of life. Um, if you had to prioritize four, which ones would they be? Well, as an individual, each person, because they have a unique set of values, is going to emphasize based on their void. See, our voids determine our values. So if we perceive we don't have knowledge, we search knowledge. We perceive we don't have a relationship, we search relationship. We perceive we don't have health, we search for health. So each person has a unique set of voids and values that make their priorities unique. So in my case, I don't see them separate anymore. I see them as entwined. Mm-hmm. I was just saying that in, in uh, San Francisco a couple of days ago. I was saying that, you know, I'm doing this presentation called The Breakthrough Experience, which is my signature program that I've done in 61 countries. And I, I said, as I'm doing it, you're probably going to think it's an educational program and a personal development program. But actually, while I'm here, you're my social life. You're my spiritual mission fulfillment. Mm-hmm. You're my intellectual pursuit. You're my business. You're my financial uh, system. Uh, you're my social life. You're part of my family because when I'm not with my actual family, you take on surrogate roles of my family and I become father or sister or brother to many of you. Yeah. And you're also uh, my physical health and well-being because I'm helping you love here in this program and master your life, which is helping me do the same. So I don't see them as separate. So the idea of prioritizing them, I could arbitrarily state, but I, in my mind, it's hard for me to separate them anymore because they're really all joined yep. as yeah. one pursuit. Mm-hmm. And I always say that in any area of your life you don't, fulfill or don't master or don't empower somebody else is going to overpower you until you're frustrated enough to empower it Mm. so i'm tempted to master as many of those areas as possible i want to wake up my genius and i feel like i've been developing my mind as much as possible i want to have an international business which i've been blessed to have i want to have financial independence which i have i want to have a an international relationship where it was not in a box in some little cubicle house somewhere. I want to have a global house. I've always said the universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room in the house. Every city is another platform to share my heart and soul. I want to have social influence. I want to have a vital body. I'm 61 going on 62. I'm vital body. And um, I want to have a, my inspired mission, which is bringing my, my service and my, my illusions that I may think are wisdom to the world. <laughs> I see them all entwined and I don't see them separate. I used to, you know, but I I think today I see them as entwined. Perfect. I like that. That's really, really, yeah, very insightful. Um, Now the next question is from Arabelle. Uh, She says, on the journey to self-discovery, how do we know if we're on the right path? 
Well, if you have to ask the question, you're obviously not in a state of presence and certainty. Hmm. So in all probability, you're subordinating yourself to outer influences and the judgments and projections of other people's values are infiltrating your thinking and clouding the clarity of the certainty that's normally expressed to your own highest value. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a, a subordination sitting there. And um, the number one thing that stops people from being clear on their mission is the injection of values of those they subordinate to. Mm-hmm. Anytime you meet somebody you think is more intelligent or more successful or more wealthy or more stable in relationship or social influential or better looking or healthier or more spiritually aware, and you minimize yourself relative to them, you'll inject what you think their values are into your life and cloud the clarity of your own mission. Mm-hmm. And then therefore have an uncertainty and a set of certainty in the path of action. So I'm a firm believer is, is not to sit in the shadows of anyone, but to stand on the shoulders of giants. So in the breakthrough experience, I have people identify who are those leaders that they've subordinated to. If not, go to the most powerful people they know in each of the areas of life, and find out whatever they admire in them and find out where and when do they demonstrate those traits until it's quantitatively and qualitatively the same so they can stand on the shoulders of those people and wake up their potentiality and not see things missing in their life. Because yeah. the level of the soul, nothing's missing. Mm. It just appears to be in the senses. Because the contrast of the senses make you think you have a conscious and unconscious. It's not missing there. Actuality, nothing's missing, but you're not honoring your full self. So you're sitting there thinking somebody else has got something you don't. Yeah, beautiful. Um, Neve also says, how do you connect with the infinite wisdom, with your infinite wisdom and how do you interpret it in such a clear and concise way? Well, it'd be, it would be, uh, if, if I was to be able to connect with the infinite, I finited it. And if I was to bring it down and put it into some sort of finite expression, I finited it. So I, I think what I would rather say is that I uh, have moments where I am inspired and I have... Uh, relative awareness, because mm. I, I don't think I have infinite awareness. I, there's nobody with infinite awareness. Mm. I have relative finite awareness that's expanded, and I hope to expand it tomorrow again, because otherwise you assume there's no growth. Yeah. If you have yeah. it, yeah. it's infinite. Yeah. You already got it. So I would rather say, if, if somebody thinks I have infinite awareness, I would rather humble myself and say I have a very minuscule finite awareness. Mm. Can I can I play a metaphor here just for Go fun? Go for it, yeah. <laughs> um, I, Imagine a, a, a yogi sitting on a, on a lotus flower mm-hmm. in, a, in the lotus position, and he's, he's chanting Om, yeah. and he's in this blissful state, and he believes that he's now, you know, like the hot dog guy, make me one with everything kind of thing. And um, now from the center of the sun, if we were visiting the sun, looking back at the earth, we would look and we couldn't see the guy. He wouldn't be visible. Hmm. And he would be going around the earth like a hamster in a, in, a, in a cage. Every 24 hours, he'd just be sitting there going around in a circle. So he's really finite in his movements. Unless he got on a jet and traveled at one mock or something, he would just be going around in a, in a, in a stationary orbit mm-hmm. from the sun's position. And going around and be trapped in this, you know, this heliocentric circle, trapped, hmm. thinking he's all enlightened. And from the sun, 93 million miles away, if he says, I am enlightened, I am enlightened, I am all aware, you'd kind of go, maybe he's illusioned to there. Now, if we go to the Milky Way, 27,000, 28,000 light years away, and we look from the Milky Way, because I like visiting there in my mind, Hmm. and you wouldn't even notice the the sun because there's too much gas and dust blocking the view. And then yet the earth would be certainly not visible. Hmm. And so the guy who's enlightened is not even visible. It doesn't exist. He's an infinitesimal now in a calculus. Hmm. 
Now, if we went to the Virgo cluster, we would see that our Milky Way is a tiny little piece in a, in a bigger cluster. And then if we went to the Lani and Kea supercluster, we would find out there's thousands, if not millions, of galaxies like that in a bigger system. And that is part of a filament, according to a web, uh, surrounded by spheres of voids in a massive void um, network of foam in mm -hmm. just the observable universe by the telescopes we have today, let alone thousand years from now, what they're going to look like. And yet to that, this guy doesn't exist. Yeah, right. But he, yeah. he's under the illusion that he's all aware, all the universally aligned. <laughs> I would rather do like Albert Einstein and live with holy curiosity and humble myself and say, I am aware of what I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And I hope tomorrow to be expanding that awareness and hope I have the willingness to, to learn some more tomorrow so I can expand, so I can contribute and serve more. Or otherwise, I stagnated the journey. So I'm, I'm not, I don't have infinite awareness. I have finite awareness. And I am continually expanding on an infinite journey. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really great... Um, great way to answer that question. I love it. <laughs> um, Samantha asked if uh, you you were sitting in front of your twenty year old self, what would you what would be the piece of advice you would give to you at that point? First thing I'd say is thank you for fulfilling your mission and and pursuing what you knew inside you what you were dedicated to and fulfilling it. I'd say thank you because you you knew what you wanted to do. It. I mean, I knew I wanted to travel the world, step foot around the world, and and study philosophy and teaching and healing when I was seventeen, eighteen years old. I just, I just first say thank you for pursuing what you saw then, and uh, congratulations on on following a vision. That's all. First, just say thank you, Beautiful. and um, and I'm glad to be. I'm glad I'm not where you are now because I get the I have expanded my awareness, but I wouldn't mind your body. Can I borrow? It? <laughs> yeah, let's swap. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and now Liz also asks, what the what are the qualities in human beings set apart that set apart the top five percent that take action in life? Well, there's a difference between reacting and taking action. And a person who's living by their highest values congruently uh, with integrity uh, are inspired and can't wait to get up and go and do what they're here to do. Mm. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine me not doing my research every day and my writing every day. I just yeah. no. And people go, you're so disciplined. And I go, no, <laughs> I, I, I don't feel it's any willpower. Yeah. It's what I love doing. I can't imagine doing anything else. This is what I love doing. Mm. Yeah, but you can do it for days and weeks and years, 43 years you've been doing this researching and stuff. I, I don't have anything else that distracts me because there's nothing more important than me. Mm. So I, it's not like I have to force it or I have to will it or I have to. It's just what I love doing. Yeah. And so... Um, I think when people are doing spontaneous acts that are inspiring to them, it's because they they found out what was meaningful to them and they gave themselves permission to delegate the rest yeah. and just go do yeah. it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I, what, I, I, I learned a, that if you want if you don't fill your day with high priority action and inspire you, it's going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. Delegate anything other than what inspires you if you want an inspiring life. Mm, beautiful. What, and what would be, you talk about your researching and you've been doing it for 43 years, if you could pick one piece of research that just totally turned things on the head for you, that you just went, whoa, and it just totally changed something for you, what would that, that, what would have that defining piece of research been? Well, I mean, I've been blessed to, to delve. I, when I started in my journey, I wanted to understand what a universal law was because mm -hmm. I heard Paul Bragg mention that. I didn't yeah. even know what it was. And uh, when I went to study it, um, it made me realize that in, to understand the universal law, it would have to be the most general universal principle that applies to the micro and macro worlds and anywhere in between. 
And um, so I went out on a quest to do that. Well, then I figured, well, in order to do that, I got to study the various disciplines and ologies. So I made a list of every known ology at the time, about 250 different ologies. And then I said, well, the average PhD reads about 100 books. So let me read 100 books in each of these ologies. So I've now just at the 30,000 bookmark of reading. So I've basically been studying to try to find that most universal essence behind all of our existence. But out of all the things that I've, I've come across in that, there's one thing that stands out that was that came to me, I'd have to say in a moment of, of inspiration, mm. I was writing a book, a two-volume set called Mysteries of the Living Cell, and it was on the origin of life because I was very fascinated. I worked in undergraduates on how life may have been originated. We used to do experiments and protein manufacturing and flat lipids and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and I was, I, so I wrote this uh, thousand-page vo- thousand volume text, two volumes, on how life may have originated. And while I was doing that, I came across redox reactions at the cell level, uh, some, some pairs of enantiomeric chemistries that were literally synchronized in, in, in uh, responses. And I got this tear of inspiration, and I realized that life, according to Peter Mitchell, Nobel Prize winners, was these synchronicities. And I thought, okay. And, and I, I, I made what I called my greatest discovery of my life. Mm. And I call it now the great discovery because I don't know what else to, to call it, but it's that, that true love is a synthesis and synchronistic compromise opposite. And that with every perception that goes on in the human mind, because when I wrote another book on the illusional basis of man's health and disease, I found out that all of our perceptions are of contrast. And at that moment, there's always a conscious and unconscious split with those contrasts. But in actuality, full consciousness is seeing both those sides at the mm-hmm. same time. So I then realized that no matter what's going on in a person's life, there is absolutely a synthesis and synchronicity, a perfect symmetry and reflective symmetry going on literally moment by moment throughout our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's nothing but love. All else was an illusion. And coming to that realization and then creating a science in my breakthrough experience, a science on how to help people experience that so they know it. So it's not theory, it's knowing. Mm-hmm. To me, that was the probably the most significant breakthrough in my life. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so talking about the breakthrough experience, that's how people can uh, get to know if they, if they haven't heard of your work, which I'd be surprised of. But if they haven't, then uh, then where where can they, you know, I'll give them your website address and everything. But what, what, what are you working on today? What's your what's your core focus today that you're teaching? Well, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on today. I, I did. They they just located in astronomy a collimated radio jet in, in what they called a counter jet mm-hmm. in space from a very massive black hole. And, and they were looking at the relativistic expression of light and uh, energy coming out of these systems and how, how those are forming and how they give rise to stars and planets and life. So I'm, I'm looking at very subtle levels. I, I study astronomy, physics, mathematics, theology, philosophy. I study everything. Mm. And, and so I, in a day, I've got 19 researchers sending me information on different fields from anthropology to physiology, uh, even some Nobel Prize. They send me stuff every day. So I try to keep up with things mm. because I, I, I think that the magnificence of the way the universe is, is far greater than any fantasies will impose on it. And so the greatest worshiping is the exploration of the mysteries of the universe. Yeah. And, and that includes the human relationship to that universe. So I'm doing that every day. And it, it, what I get in in a day can vary from political issues to science issues, physiology, anthropology, yeah. cosmology. I'm getting stuff all the time. So it, it varies today. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I try my best to express that in my 75 courses that I teach. And the breakthrough is the, my, my entry point. That's, yeah. that's the yeah. most significant course 
entry point that I could offer people. Yeah. Beautiful. And I'll, I'll include the links for people who uh, want to find out more about that. So thank you so much, Dr. John Martini, for just this wonderful uh, experience that I've had with you, experiencing you and talking to you has been uh, a, an amazing experience. And um, I'd like to finish on uh, one question that I do ask most of my interviewees is, uh, you know, this is the digital consciousness community. So I'd like to get your interpretation of what you think it means to be digitally conscious. <laughs> well, because I've delegated so much, I'm probably the most un, uh, illiterate in that area. I'm, I'm learning how to. I mean, I used the cell phone the other day and actually did one of those uh, the live ones. Yes, yeah, the live ones. Yeah. And I, you did good. I was like you did holding good. it. And I did okay, I guess. Um, I've delegated so much of that that I I can't say I'm current with it. I'm I'm reading the book on Elon Elon Musk and some of his works because I'm always fascinated and bold by Peter. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I think that. It's inevitable that we're going to can from the time of the Greeks, they had what they called teleology, the study of meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. But they also had a concomitant with it called technology, which is a means to an end. Teleology is the end in mind, and technology was a means to an end in mind. So those that had technology were the ones that are able to fulfill the meaning and purpose more effectively. Mm. Now I haven't been the technologist per se, but I've surrounded myself with the technologist to help me fulfill that. But at the same time, technology is the vehicle that we more effectively and efficiently express the most meaningful and inspiring contributions we can make to humanity. Mm. And so the digital age is a stage. Someday it'll probably go another stage. But right now, that's a major binomial stage of development that's essential to make things happen. Yeah. I mean, look, in 1950s, a child had to read an encyclopedia and know what was going on in the world, and it was outdated. Today, it's live. You're present. you got the overview effect. You can love people from all over the world. There's so much advancement that's occurred because of digital age. So uh, I'm humble to it in the sense of my own knowing, but I'm, I'm inspired by what it can, it's capable of doing. And I, I, I can't even imagine. I, I, I know that whatever I can imagine is still not, it's not broad enough to cover what's going to be here a thousand years from now. Yeah. And that's, I, I would love to stop back in and see how it's doing a thousand years from now. Just yeah, for fun. Me too. <laughs> they probably think I was a freak dressed up like the way I am today. <laughs> Some caveman. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So thank you so much, Dr. John D. Martini, for making the time to share your knowledge and to teach us even further about uh, giving us just a 45-minute or a 60-minute overview into what goes on in the mind of Dr. John D. Martini. So thank you so much for, for spending the time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It was a fun, fun interview and uh, hopefully we – we made some sort of contribution to somebody's journey. Yes, hopefully. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.